turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Uh, we're continuing our study through Luke's Gospel. Um, what we do here week in and week out, we just kind of walk through uh, books of the Bible, taking breaks here and there. Uh, we find ourselves in Luke chapter 14 uh, this morning, verses 25 through verse 35. Uh, I'm going to read uh, the text and then I'll pray and we will dive into the Word of God uh, together. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king? going out to encounter another king in war, will not first sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Dear great God, we bow before you now. We thank you for your holy word, God. We thank you for the the high demands of our calling as followers of Christ. God, we stop and give you praise for who you are. You are a God, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abound in steadfast love. Lord, your love endures forever. You are our fortress. You are our strong tower. You are our ever-present help in time of need. God, we praise you for your holy, righteous, blameless character. And God, when we enter into your presence, we are aware of our sin. We are aware how we fall short of your glory. God, I pray that you would remind us of your great grace. God, we have sinned against you this past week, sins of commission, sins of omission. God, we have not lived in some ways as your true disciples. God, I pray that you would bring to mind things in our lives that we need to be destroyed, God. I pray that you would open our eyes to show us what threats are coming against us. And God, we pray that this morning we would rest in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and his blood shed for us, the blood that was shed that we have peace, peace through the blood of that cross. So God, we we thank you for your great promise that though our sins were like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. God, let us feel that forgiveness this morning that we have in Jesus. And God, we pray that that grace would, would comfort the Sly family. We thank you for Fran and Debbie. God, we, we thank you for their trust in you. 
Father, we pray now, God, that you would be with them. God, we thank you for Mr. TJ and his life. God, we thank you for his salvation, how he chose to follow you. God, we thank you that he fought the good fight of faith. God, we pray now that you would just minister to that family by the power of your Holy Spirit. Minister to our congregation as we lose a long-time faithful member. And God, we do pray for um, those in our city who do not know Jesus. God, we pray that you would use the preaching of the word this morning to call people out of the kingdom of darkness into the beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So God, I pray this morning for Reggie Hopkins as he preaches at Calvary Baptist Church. God, I pray that you would anoint his preaching by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, that you would encourage that congregation to what it means to be a true disciple of the Lord Jesus. Use his preaching to call people uh, to our Lord. And God, we pray that now for our own hearts. God, I pray for the people that you have allowed me to shepherd. God, I pray that you would bless them through the preaching of your word. God, I pray now that I may decrease and that you may increase. God, that all that is said and done is done for your glory, God. I pray that you would, you would allow me to announce your word and that you would preach through me by the power of the Holy Spirit of God to rest it upon your, the hearts of your people. God, you love these people more than I could ever love them, God. You have given them your word to encourage, to, to challenge, and to convict them in regards to righteousness and judgment. So, dear God, I pray that the word of God would be preached with power for your glory and your glory alone. So, God, I pray that you would prepare the soil. God, as it says in your holy word, it says, He who has ears, let him hear. God, I pray that the ears may be opened now, that they would hear your word. Glorify Jesus through this message. We ask this in his name. Amen. On March 12, 2002, Tom Ridge, the head of the Department of Homeland Security unveiled the Homeland Security Advisory System. Uh, it was a response in, in what happened to our country in 9-11. Uh, the system was modeled after the forest fire system in, in a five color-coded threat levels. Uh, it was designed to inform the public about the probability of a terrorist attack on the United States of America. Uh, the color-coded system had five stages, green, low risk, blue, general risk, yellow, elevated, orange, high risk, and red, severe risk of a terrorist attack. The system uh, was affected for nine years until it was changed in, in 2011. But the new head of Department of Homeland Security, Jen Napolitano, uh, introduced the change in January 27th in a speech at George Washington University by saying these words, I quote, Today I announce the end of the old system of the color-coded alerts. In its place, we will implement a new system that's built on a clear and simple premise. When a threat develops that could impact you, the public, we will tell you. We will provide you whatever information you can so you know how to protect yourselves, your families, and your communities. The United States government did not want to bother the American people unless there was a serious threat to their lives. The change reveals a serious flaw in our thinking about potential dangers. The greatest threats are not the ones that we are expecting, but the threats that come without notice. The only, inf only informing our society of eminent threats allows us to be lulled into a an idea of thought that we are safe from all threats. There are very real threats in our culture 
but the greatest are ones that we do not see coming, that we are not anticipating. Listen to what Kevin Spacey aptly states in, the Acad- in his Academy Award-winning role as the villain, as the villain Kaiser Sose in The Usual Suspects, when he says, the greatest trick the devil, ever, the devil ever pulled was to convince the world he didn't exist. When we ignore the real threats to our faith, we can easily be destroyed by them. The United States government informs you of a threat when it could hurt your life. Likewise, the Lord Jesus Christ himself informs you of the eminent threats that could destroy your faith. This morning, we're going to look at three threats that Jesus lists of the the threats to true discipleship. The first threat is the threat of family. The threat of family. It's important to see the context of these threats before we begin. Um, Jesus just finished a meal with the Pharisees. Remember, that's the last meal that Jesus had with the Pharisees. He rebuked them for not accepting his invitation to the banquet. Now Jesus turns towards the crowds. So this passage is not directly spoken to the Pharisees, which is a change from recent chapters, but it's spoken to the crowds of those people who would desire to follow after Jesus. Looks into Luke 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now before we dig into that specific threat, let's kind of zoom out and see how Jesus approaches the crowd. You know, Jesus is not concerned with gathering the crowd. Can I say that again? Jesus is not concerned with gathering the crowd. He is not concerned with filling the pews. Can we learn a lesson from Jesus here? Jesus did not care about the crowds coming. Neither should we. In September, 20, in September 2005, in the issue of Rev Magazine, uh, pastors team Tim Stevens and Tony Morgan of Granger Community Church in Granger, Indiana, wrote an article to provide a number of ideas of how to gather, how to attract a crowd. Here are some of those ideas. Address a specific need, such as marriages, raising families, money, fulfillment. Number two, entertain people. Three, make children a priority. Three, raise the energy level of worship. Turn up the volume. Give people hope, grace, not condemnation. People should leave challenged but encouraged. Offer multiple surfaces regardless of how full your church is. Now, I want you to notice that these ideas had nothing to do with the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had nothing to do with expounding the glory of God, that people would come to know who God is is in light of the scriptures. Beloved, we have to resolve in our hearts today and every day, that we are not going to serve the needs of the crowd, but we are going to reach the people in our community the way Jesus expects us to reach the people, calling people to repentance and faith in the gospel. Jesus did not attract the crowd by appealing uh, to their desires. 
but appealing to their true need. They needed the gospel. They needed the true gospel. They did not need to be entertained. And yet so much of our church culture says you need to entertain people. And Jesus was having none of it. Our world does not need more entertainment. We're doing just fine there, aren't we? What we need is the gospel of Christ. So what would Jesus think of the the modern church's efforts to draw in a crowd? Jesus wants to reach people. That's why he came. That's why he walked Calvary's road. He even tells us in the the passage we preached last week to go to the highways and to to the hedges and compel people to come in. Jesus wants to reach the crowds. But he, he does not reach them with the allure of the world. Listen to 1 John chapter 2, 15 and 17. Do not love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So can we just do this, beloved? Can we reach people? But can we reach people God's way? Let us not bend to the ways of the world. Because I want you to notice how strong Jesus' language is here. Look again at verse 26. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his family, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not trying to to comfort the crowd. He's trying to give the crowd what they need, the gospel. Now, this this idea, what does he mean by hating your family? The idea is not literal. We know several other places we should love our neighbors, love our wives, as Christ loved the church, we should love our children. The idea is not to to say that we don't love. It's it's not uh, literal, but it's rhetorical. This idea of hate simply means to love less. We see this language in Genesis 29, 30 and 31. Moses writes, he loved Jacob. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb and Rachel was barren. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. So Moses described Leah as being hated. Jacob did not hate Leah in the, in the modern sense but loved her less than Rachel. Jesus is saying, if you do not love your family less than me, you cannot be my disciple. The language is strong. But it's not meant to to mean that we should mistreat our family. But when we come to Christ, we shift all allegiances. Our closest allegiance, those who are of family and friends, are now moved to Christ. Christ is Lord of all. Now remember, for a Jew to become a Christian in the first century, it would have meant abandonment, estrangement from their families. By putting their faith in Christ, they would have immediately been ostracized, bringing reproach upon themselves. Now it's hard to understand in our modern southern context But it's clearly seen that when you choose Christ, you could lose your life in other places of the world. We've seen that even in the Middle East this past week. When I was in D.C. 
I was part of a Bible study um, group, um, and one of the leader of the group started reading the Bible uh, with his wife with a Muslim woman. Uh, she was living in America, coming from Muslim, Muslim parents, and they started reading through the Bible together. In about six months, she started really questioning Islam. Uh, and then she, after reading the, the Gospel of, of John, she, she became a believer. Uh, she became a believer in Christ, and uh, she went home to tell her family about her newfound faith in Christ, and she was put out. Out of my home. She had to find a new place to live. This is the kind of allegiance that God wants. She was willing to risk estrangement from her family because Jesus Christ demands all. Now, there is great pressure uh, to please our families, isn't there? You know, I'm, I'm not sure about you, but I have many non-believers in my family. And when, when, when people question the, the idea of the exclusivity of the gospel, it creates an awkward conversation. It creates an awkward conversation with my family. But in those moments, am I going to retreat and play nice? Or am I going to give my family what they really need? The gospel of Christ. Family is a gift from God, but it is also a threat to true discipleship. In a survey done in 2012, 600 women were surveyed, 18 years or older, who professed to be a Christian and had attended church at attended a church service within the last six months, not including Easter and Christmas. Um, of these women surveyed, listen, and these are professing Christians, 53% claim their highest priority is their family, while only 16% said their highest priority was their faith in Jesus Christ. When asked to define themselves, 63% called themselves a mother or parent first, while only 13% percent claimed themselves as a follower of Christ. The studies could reveal that most women primarily see their role as a disciple of Christ as being a mother or a parent, but it also may reveal that family in the American church has become an idol. David Kinnaman responds to this serve with a series of questions that I think would be good to ask ourselves. Listen to these questions and I quote, has raising children and doing it well become central to the definition of being a good Christian? What happens to a mom who struggles in her role as a parent or to a woman who wants to but cannot become or never becomes a parent? Are these women somehow perceived as less Christian by fellow believers? Could a grace-based theology of faith in Christ be undermined if many Christians embrace a parallel works-based theology when it comes to their parenting? regardless of whatever roles we have within our families. We must heed Jesus' warnings. If you come to me and do not love me more than your own family, you cannot be my disciple. The first threat to true discipleship is the threat of loving family more than Christ. The second threat is the, the threat of comfort, the threat of comfort. Jesus continues in verse 27. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Did you hear that refrain again? The idea of that refrain again and again in this text is, is to drive home what it means not to be a disciple of Christ. He says that we must bear our cross. Now remember, who's he speaking to? He's not speaking to the Pharisees. He's speaking to the crowds. He's not offering them a new iPad for following him. 
he's offering them an object of torture. If you want me, you have to be willing to die. Not the best way to grow your church. But Jesus is not concerned with growing his church through the world's methods. Listen to what scholar Daryl Bach says of cross-bearing. See, cross-bearing publicly displayed a person's submission to the state. A criminal rebelled against the state and so bore the penalty of punishment from it. Cross-bearing was a visible public affair that, a, that a visualized a person's humility before the state. Thus, the fundamental idea of submitting to the authority of another, in this case, God. So when you bear your own cross, what you're doing is you're submitting to the authority of God over your life. You have no other authority but His. The Christian life is not one of ease or comfort. It's a call to die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor theologian who on April 5th, 1943, was arrested for assassination plot against Adolf Hitler. Now, Bonhoeffer was safe in America when the war began, but he made a choice to go back to Germany. This is what he says to, in a letter to Reinhold Niebuhr. He wrote, The finest logic of Christian martyrdom, I shall have no right to participate in the reconstruction of the Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. See, Bonhoeffer lived out what he preached. When Christ calls a man, he says, he bids him come and die. Bonhoeffer was executed April 9th, 1945, only a few days before the Allied forces liberated the concentration camp. Beloved, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Do you see how different the message of Jesus is the message from our day? When will the American church wake up and not listen to the lies that are being broadcasted from pulpits across America? Jesus says, if you come to me, you must come and die. Jesus is calling you to rock, walk the road that he walked. Listen to 1 Peter 2, 20-23. But if when you do good and suffer, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. See, Bonhoeffer knew that there was no other way to walk but to walk the way of the master. Jesus did nothing wrong, and yet he died in the place of sinners. He bore our sins in his body. He took our penalty, our debt, on the cross. And in his death, he purchased our life. That's what the Bible says, that when you become to Christ, your life is not your own. It's been bought with the price. Christ's blood was spilled for your soul, for your life. We have no rights, but we joyfully and willfully submit 
to the will of our master. So let me ask you this. Do you want temporal comfort more than Christ? Do we want temporal pleasures more than we want eternal glory? Are we willing to walk the earthly road of suffering so we can experience heavenly joy? God has not promised us worldly comfort, but rather worldly strife. Now, has He promised us comfort? Yes. He will comfort us in the midst of our trials. He will comfort us. That is the promise of the Holy Spirit. He will send the comforter. But the worldly comfort that we seek in this world destroys, or this this idea of calling to suffer destroys a seeker-sensitive, consumer-driven, crowd-gathering church culture. The call to Christ is a call to die. To die to your own way and your desires and live for God's glory. Laying down your comforts for the sake of others. Suffering forces us to grow, doesn't it? You can't not grow when you suffer. Suffering suffering and bearing with people forces us to grow in holiness, in love, and in patience. Comfort, on the other hand, leads to complacency. Our comfort hinders our growth. The entire Christian life is about growing up into Him who is the head, into Christ. When comfort stagnates our growth, and yet what do we want? We don't want to grow. We want comfort. It's often been said of the role of the preacher, my job is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Beloved, do not seek after comfort. This is a threat to true discipleship. Heed the warning of Jesus. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The last threat of true Christian discipleship is that Jesus highlights is the threat of possessions. The threat of possessions. Jesus illustrates this point with two parables. Read with me in chapter 14, verse 28. For which of you built desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish. And all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not, first, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now the parable expresses this idea of counting the cost before you come to Christ. The first parable referenced those who, who begin to build to make sure that you have enough to complete the building. If you do not finish the building, there will be people who walk by and mock you. Now, many of you probably have heard of Westminster Abbey. Uh, it is the, one of the most famous churches in all of the world, uh, the most famous church in England. Uh, well, just down the street from Westminster Abbey is another church called the Westminster Cathedral. It was started in 1895, and guess what? It's still not done. They, they, they made the outside structure. They built everything beautifully on the outside, but inside is bare. It was too expensive to finish. 
what Jesus is saying here, before you start the journey with the Lord Jesus Christ, make sure you know what I am asking of you. When you start, finish. As it is with our relationship with Christ, are we willing to consider that we have to give up all before we come to him? See, one of the reasons that our culture has kind of imploded in, in, in the Christian world is that many calls to come to Christ almost seem as Jesus is begging you to come. Now, I, I, I'm going to beg you to follow Christ. I'm going to plead with you. I'm going to compel you. I'm going to use every ounce of energy within me so that you would follow after Jesus. That's what I, I pray for you. Every Sunday morning, I pray that you would follow after Jesus. But if, I, if, you, if it's this begging aspect that you have to come, you have to consider this. Who are you standing against when you don't come? You're standing against God himself. God has his arms open wide and saying, come. But you must turn. You must repent. Following Jesus is not a casual decision, but one that deserves serious thought. In the second parable, Jesus points out another situation where a king is is coming with 20,000 troops and and it says that the first three words kind of sums up this whole parable. Or what king? The idea that no king would enter into a conflict with, with lives on the line without seriously deliberating over the possible outcome. So we see in verse 33, Jesus drives his point home to the crowd. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You see how Jesus is asking people to to consider the true cost of discipleship. What is it going to take to follow after Jesus? Jesus does not want you to to sprinkle him in your life. Kind of have an add-on. I'm going to do exactly what I'm doing, but I'm going to have a little bit of Jesus in my life. That's not the way Jesus is talking here, is he? He wants everything. Are you willing to give Jesus everything? That's what he wants. He wants people who are willing to give up all they have. So he's expecting you to renounce all you have. You have to ask yourself, what do you have? What do you possess? Your money, your house, clothing, friends, your reputation, your name, your status, your hobbies, even your own life. So when Jesus says, When you come after me, you have to renounce all that you have. All your possessions are now to be used for God's glory and for the advancement of his kingdom and not for yourself. And although it seems as God is asking a lot here, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like he says, all you have, really? Jesus, everything? It sounds like he's asking you to give up a lot. But beloved, he offers so much more. You renounce temporal fleeting pleasures. And you receive eternal life where at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. You renounce your home that will rust, spoil, and fade. But you receive a heavenly home that is undefiled, unblemished, and unfading. Jesus is not asking you to give up something that he has not already given up himself. He stepped out of eternal glory to take the form of a servant, to die on a Roman cross, to be forsaken by his Father for you. 
in response to that kind of love. Count the cost of coming to Christ. The choice will be simple. He offers you His forever, but you have to give up your present. You get Him if you forsake all. In 1519, Hernan Cortez arrived on the shores of America with 600 men at the behest of the Spanish king to defeat the Aztec Empire to bring treasure back to Spain. After arriving on the shore, Cortez intentionally sank all his ships, except one, which was left for the plunder. Now, before sinking these ships, they removed all the necessary materials for for housing and for war. These 600 men were left in a strange land with no opportunity to escape. When writing, Cortez wrote this, These men had nothing to rely on apart from his own hands and the assurance that they would conquer and win the land or die in the attempt. We're all in, and there's no turning back. See, Cortez modeled the kind of commitment that Jesus wants from us. The only difference is is that Jesus wants you to destroy the last ship. He wants you to destroy all and come to him. He says, if anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. He ends this, and as I conclude, he warns the crowd in verses 34 and 35. Hear these words. Salt is good, but if salt lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. See, salt has a purpose to preserve and to give flavor for food. If salt no longer serves its purpose, it is thrown away. See, every person is created in the image of God. Every person was created for a purpose. That purpose that every person was created for was for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus wants us to live for his glory. But we have to love him more than all. Hear me, beloved. If we love our family more than faith, if we love our comfort more than the cross, our possessions more than praise, we cannot be his disciples and will one day be thrown away. Jesus does not want half-hearted followers. He does not want lukewarm Christians. He wants everything. He wants your all. He deserves your all. For he gave his all for you. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for your gospel. I pray that the gospel that was preached today would have power on its listeners. God, we thank you for the call of Christ, that you bid us come and die. God, I pray that we would love you more than our family, that we would love you more than our comfort, and that we would love you more than our possessions. God, let us be the kind of people who are willing to renounce all that we have, that we may be your true disciples. Keep us aware of the threats, Lord. 
Help us live for you and for your glory. Help us live that salty life. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.